0: I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair and let's begin. Best-selling author Boo Walker initially tapped his creative muse as a songwriter and banjoist in Nashville before working his way west to Washington State, where he bought a gentleman's farm on the Yakima River. It was there, amongst the grapevines and wine barrels, that he fell in love with telling high-impact stories that now resonate with book clubs around the world. Rich with colorful characters and boundless soul, his novels will leave you with an open heart and a lifted spirit. Always a wanderer, Boo lives in Valencia, Spain with his wife and son. He also writes thrillers under the pen name Benjamin Blackmore. Welcome, Boo.
1: Thank you. It's very good to be here.
0: I have to ask right off the bat, how did you get the name Boo?
1: I grew up in the upstate of South Carolina, and almost everybody has a nickname that has nothing to do with your real name. My real name is Lemuel Harold Walker III, and my son is the fourth, but my grandfather senior is Hacky, and then my dad's Lim, which came from Lemuel, but then I'm Boo, and then my son's name's Riggs, so it just kind of comes with the territory. It's like almost a, a second name that you get when you're born.
0: You began as a musician, so what made you fold back creativity into writing novels?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That really cuts down to the core of my soul, actually. I was a bit of a troublesome kid growing up, especially in my teenage years. And somewhere along the way, I ended up in boarding school because of some things I really did wrong in in my 11th grade. I went to this boarding school in Tennessee, and it was like this light bulb moment of my life. I met a couple of musicians that were my age that were playing acoustic guitar. And then I met a music teacher that actually was an English teacher. And he was playing a little banjo and guitar. And I just like, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm having these frustrations as a teenager because I have no way to express myself. And as soon as I just started thinking about playing the banjo and started playing music with these guys, it was like, oh, I'm not going to be a problem anymore to my parents or anything. And it was a really like, I became absolutely addicted and obsessed with the banjo to the point where I ended up going to music school at the College of Charleston and was one of the first banjo majors in the country. And I was studying classical and jazz and I joined a band called the Biscuit Boys. We started playing out in Charleston and kind of blew up for a local band. We were doing pretty darn well to the point where we dropped out and moved to Nashville and started playing and doing some really big gigs with. Travis Tritt and the Dixie Chicks and stuff. And then on 9-11, 2001, um, we woke up to go record a studio album. We went into the studio and I started having some hand problems and my index fingers started tucking in. I didn't know for sure until another year of traveling around, seeing doctors. And I basically learned that I had something called dystonia. In most cases, a career ending hand disorder. I always relate everything to fiction. So that was my dark night of the soul moment. I went through a pretty deep, dark place for a while, left Nashville, just, you know, left the band and and really felt like I'd let them down. You know, I dropped out of college. This was what I was going to do. But I eventually pulled myself back together and went to finish my last semester of college and got into computer programming. Then just somehow, someway walked into this seminar with these day trading guys and jumped at an opportunity to get a uh, internship. And for the next 10 years, I was a day trader and with a really important firm that basically invented algorithmic trading across the whole US. It was really all well and good. But of course, my creative side was really, it was in a funk. I was in a ditch and I was playing guitar, but it just wasn't feeling right. And so I started writing and I started writing probably Two years after I officially had dystonia, maybe three years, and it kind of took off in the way that my banjo did and that it was like, oh, I I finally found a way again to express myself. And I really just it became if I'm not going to be reading craft books or writing, then I'm going to be reading novels. Pretty much been that way ever since I've had a few day jobs in the past and. Anytime I had a day job, it was always I have two full time jobs because it was get up and write until it was time to get a shower and go to work. And as soon as I get home or even during lunch or even when my boss wasn't looking, it was like, I want to be studying how to be a novelist or or write or that kind of thing. So long answer to your question of what led me to writing for music.
0: How many books have you published?
1: Ooh, let's see. I think it's 10, but I, I'm uh I'm I'm pretty close with 10. I started out with writing thrillers and I wrote two um, full-length thrillers and then a novella. And then I started I I realized that I my calling was perhaps something different, which now would be termed book club fiction. I don't even know if that word existed when I started I, I had this hankering to change genres and write something that was a little bit more emotional driven normal characters that don't have guns, that aren't chasing people or trying to solve a crime, people who are suffering from things and how they climb out of them. And so I wrote this Red Mountain series and what were there, four of those. And now I'm just wrapping up my third book with Lake Union. Um, so I guess that, that would be-
0: Tell us about your latest project.
1: It's called The Singing Trees and it came out in August and it's been doing really well. It's been in the top 150 in the Kindle store for most of the time and uh, been really well-received stepping into a woman's body and writing from her point of view fully, and this is her journey in the 1960s and 70s from this young Italian artist growing from being 17 to 80 or, you know, 85. It's kind of um, in the category in historical women's fiction with Kristen Hanna and Fiona Val. It came about in a really strange way. When I started writing my Red Mountain stuff, I was a big fan of movies like Crash and Traffic and Valentine's Day and where the characters are, each of their stories matters and they kind of brush up against each other and maybe even connect. And that's what I wrote with Red Mountain. And in doing so, I started to having to write from female points of view And I really fell in love with it. I really started to enjoy it. And I have a great group of beta readers who are mostly women who started to, you know, point out when I made a mistake. And I started to see the patterns of like, I want to be authentic. And what I learned is that writing from an authentic place in a woman's point of view is just like writing from a guy's point of view. Yes, we have different interests, but we're a lot more similar than we think. And as I was just letting myself be honest, and instead of thinking, oh, what is my reader going to say about this? Or, you know, they're going to challenge me and say this. It was more like just completely be in the skin of the character and don't worry a thing about what happens elsewhere. So anyway, I started to realize because of the reviews and and mostly because of people writing me that I have a, a talent for writing female characters. And that was where this story started to come from is I, I kind of was wanting to tell that kind of story, but I, sh- I should back up for a second. I was submitting for like union and I had this story called an unfinished story ready to pitch to them. And I needed one more. And I was really scrambling. Like I needed something within three days because they wanted to do a deal so I could get something out that next summer to squeeze me into the calendar. Otherwise I was going to have to wait. And I was really racking my brain because, you know, as a as a writer, pressure deadlines, things like that can really um, stunt your creativity. And we all get better at it as we go. But I was frustrated because I needed something like the next day. And I just remember sitting down on the couch. I was in Naples at my in-law's house and just thinking, I don't know what to do here. Maybe I just don't submit anything else. And right then, right as I kind of let go and quit trying, my mother-in-law sat down and told me her story of her life growing up in Pennsylvania as a teenager. And then kind of what happened over the next 15 years. And I was like, why this is fascinating. Can I like steal this and run with it? She was like, yeah, sure. And then the next day as I slept on it, I was like, no, your story is so unbelievable, but I want to move it out of Pennsylvania and move it to Maine. I want to change the character names. I want to up the conflict in every way possible. I just want to use the seed of your story. And she, of course, gifted me the story. And so we spent the next few months getting to know each other in such a beautiful way. And I would, I was either in town and we'd sit out on her her porch or I'd call her and I'd say, what was a typical Italian meal like? What were the family members like? And so I started creating this character that was kind of my mother-in-law, um, but different because I didn't want to try to capture her. Right, my mother in right. too, she's too wise and um even keeled. I needed somebody, this this young firecracker of a woman. And um, but she was an artist, too. And it was her journey of getting out of her small town and moving to the big city and trying to break into being an artist. And of course, the biggest obstacle was uh, was love. And she didn't believe in love because of what had happened in her life. But then she meets this Ivy Leaguer who comes along and throws a big wrench. And so all of a sudden I submitted it to Lake Union and they bit. And then I was like, oh, hold on. So I'm going to have to write a historical novel on top of it all, a a time that I wasn't even alive because I was born in 79 and this needed to start in 69. So it was a lot, but boy, was it such a gratifying experience. And with the help of a great editing team, I'm just so proud of it. And I think it's probably going to be the book to beat for the rest of my career. And I keep just telling myself, this isn't like a try to always outdo the next book. Every book is just totally different, but i I sense that this one is going to be the one on my deathbed where I'm like, man, you really put everything you had into that, didn't you? You know, I'm proud of you, boo.
0: What is your idea to manuscript process look like?
1: There's nothing I wish more than if I had a method that seemed to work for every single book. It would be the greatest. And I really, as I came out of the gates, it seemed like writing was easier back in the old days. I think there's a bit of added pressure and demand of myself that I ask myself, But I used to start out outlining and the past two books, for whatever reason, they didn't, as much as I started outlining, they didn't map out in my head and I couldn't see the end, but I knew I had to write them. And that's the one I'm currently in production with and the singing trees. Like I I knew where the conflict was, but I didn't exactly know what the character wanted all the way through. I didn't know the theme. I didn't know how it was going to come to a climax and stuff. And as much as I kept banging my head against the wall, it was like, I think these are going to have to be ones where I just start writing and kind of see what happens. And sadly, that means I'm probably going to have to delete a hundred, 200,000 words. So that's where I've been the past two years. And that's a tough way to write when you're writing one book a year. It really is. I mean, I, I need to give myself a break. And that's my intent with the next couple is to, Hey, you know, quit swinging for the fences and let's just hit a couple really solid hits. But I do outline, even these past two I outlined, it was just, I kind of knew I was going to stray big time. But the, yeah. the idea is, once I have the idea, then it starts to be who is this character. And I just bounce around forever. And it's so funny to think about like, how much time I tried to think of what their name was, and then who they looked like, and all that, because then it eventually starts to solidify in your head and then i'm like what's their problem what did the, you know what's what's hanging over them and what how am i going to teach them this lesson so i start to think of it in those terms and then i think of i want to write a logline you know this i want a sentence or two of what the story is and this is a good example of i was just flying blind on this last book my the one i'm writing now is He wanted to, I'm not going to give a lot away, but he wanted to help his daughter by taking her to Spain. It was a great concept and I couldn't wait. It was going to be like this Thelma and Louise thing um, with a daughter and a father. And I write it and on page 80, they get to Spain and I realize she's better and, and he's the one that's messed up. So my log line was take her to Spain to help her. But that only got me to page 80. And then it was like, oh, so it completely blew up in my face. And I had to just sit back and go, what am I telling? Where is the story going from here? And for the record, to finish the thought is I started to kind of think he takes his daughter to Spain to help her and walks into way more than he ever could have imagined. As I go into this next book, and I swear, I think it's been me kind of wanting to flex my literary muscles a bit with these past two books of like, Hey, I don't want to stick to a pattern. I really want to just prove that like, you can't hold me down. Well, I think with these, these next couple, I'm going to just sit with that log line for so long and really make sure it feels good. And then sit with the characters and probably not start until I know exactly how it's going to end.
0: Great okay. advice for all of us. Cause sometimes we write a whole bunch and then we do the log line and it's really hard to backtrack and go, Wait, but this doesn't really fit what what I thought my goal was, or or what the yeah. characters presented. So it becomes harder.
1: It's you don't want to have to delete a lot because it hurts, and it you does. know there's always going to be deleting. But I certainly deleted every bit of two hundred thousand words with the singing trees, and with this one, I'm over a hundred thousand easy. I just matter of fact, this morning it's due next week, and just this morning I was deleting huge chunks of the end and just so sad because it, you know, it was really enjoyable and I was proud of it, but it wasn't serving the story or the log line. So it just had to all go. And it's like, all right, I, I just want to be more efficient with the next book. That's that's my goal is just know where you're going and cruise along. I wish it just came out easy the first
0: time. But don't you feel like even though you throw all those words away, you've gotten to know those characters and their settings and their problems better. It's like, It's like, I can tell you about my friend, you know, Joe, but I can also show you a movie of the last 30 years. I mean, you've got that movie of the last 30 years and you really can appreciate what Joe's problems are. It's not wasted. Totally,
1: I agree. It's definitely not wasted. And I was thinking, I was just listening to a podcast, Smartless, and they were interviewing Ken Burns, about the specific details of like the beat that the music ends compared to this image that he uses in his documentary and how that image was chosen out of 20 after major deliberations. And I just thought, you know, when we watch a movie, we have to understand every single thing is dissected And that's what most books are. If they're great and have some like staying power is every single paragraph is thought out. Like if, if you're reading a great book and you're like, how did he do that? Or wait, what? That was connected to this. That was connected to this. That probably didn't come out the first time. This was teasing things out and then thinking, Oh, does his uncle Joe do? And just knowing that it might be just the subconscious, but it starts to all feed into this much more complex story. So I think it goes back to that uh, Hemingway quote of you have to know what's uh, the tip of the iceberg is sticking out and you have to know what else is underneath the surface to really tell the right story and I think that's what the editing process is in general is saying okay so you got a nice dialogue here but what is the motivations behind that character and let's you know squeeze the juice out of it that's what my editors constantly like if you saw the inline edits it's either what is he feeling right now what is he really feeling or I think there's a bit more juice we could squeeze out of that by really making him feel that earlier in the book and then we'll have more impact when that dialogue comes about
0: what is That something special readers will always get when reading your books?
1: To this day, which I can't promise for forever, I believe my books will leave you with a very uplifted um, thirst for life. And I think that's because. I'm really into tackling characters that are mostly like us, probably a little bit more colorful because that's interesting, going through stuff that we all go through. I've really been into grief, I've realized, for the past few books. Not intentionally, but I really, for some reason, resonate with it, maybe because I have some uh, subconscious fear of death or something. But I love just seeing normal people dig their way out. And every one of my books, they typically dig their way out. It might not be the way they wanted to get out. Yeah, uh, and that's where the surprises come. But I, I would like to think as my characters dig out, I often, especially, I hear this a lot from readers, is they, they find themselves digging out of things as well.
0: What's next for you?
1: Well, I mentioned this book. I so I moved to Spain last October, and with the intent of kind of doing a year and writing a book uh, to follow some of my heroes that I'm not worthy of, like. Uh, Anthony Doerr and uh, Amor Tolles and Pat Conroy, who all spent time over here in Hemingway. Actually, he started and wrote most of his first book um, just a few blocks from where I am, and I walk by it all the time. But I, I came here to write a book, and we've just decided to stay till next summer. So I think I'm going to write another book. I'm really fascinated with the expat life here, which expat is sometimes a derogatory term for some reason, but it's really just people living outside of their own country. And there's a really interesting mix of mostly English speaking expats here that reminds me of my characters in Red Mountain. And then I've got a couple other ideas brewing. I'm really excited. I just learned that my great, great, great something uncle wrote Lorna Dune, which is a famous love story set outside of Exeter in in England. And so I've got an idea to play with that a little bit. I've got about five stories that I'm really excited about. And it's such a pressure off to know that, hey, that's five years worth of work. It's nice.
0: What are you reading now?
1: Wow. That's easy to answer because I have uh, my 15 books that I just got delivered last week while my wife was gone. So she wouldn't know. Now she
0: knows. (laughs)
1: Um, I'm actually reading a woman named Kate Morton right now. And she is a monster. She writes kind of, uh, I guess you would call it women's fiction, but past and present set in England and set current day and in the past. And I just am blown away by her writing. But a couple others that have really struck me lately are The the Silent Patient. I stepped out. I read my first thriller in a while, and I thought that was so fun. And I just was reminded, like, you don't always have to read something that is in a massive emotional journey. And that one kind of is. But fun to read something where you're just like, oh, this is like watching candy. I mean, you just, you know, watching the greatest, easiest movie ever where you just can't stop, you know, and it was fun to do that. But the other ones that I'm looking at right now are A Little Life I Just Bought and I know it's going to rip my heart out but i have it anyway and i just bought kate atkinson life after life Uh, we began at the end with chris whitaker station 11 ivan doig the whistling season somebody's been pushing me to do that i just bought a copy of the sun also rises to read again the nickel boys the guest list when some of those thrillers last that, that long i get excited about reading them and they always are so rewarding like girl on the train and I
0: just finished this one. We Were Never Here. Andrea Bartz was very well written. She had great imagery. Writers often talk about how their fellow writers support them through the best and worst of times. Have you found this to be true?
1: I have. I have such an impactful example. I have a lot of good writer friends, and I started attending NINK a while ago in St. Pete, and I realized that writing isn't exactly a solitary experience. And as soon as I got surrounded by all these authors, it was just so impactful to know and to just be around them and to commiserate and to see what people are capable of word count-wise and stuff like that. But I mentioned earlier that I switched from thrillers to uh, high impact fiction. The reason I did that was a very random um, serendipitous meeting with a woman named Lila Meacham, who just passed away a few days ago. And she's from um, San Antonio and she became my mentor. And that was, what was that? I guess that was probably 2009, 2010, something like that. Maybe a little bit later, but she was on a steamboat cruise through the Columbia River when I was living in the wine country in Eastern Washington. And my in-laws happened to be on the same cruise and they were stopping to go taste wines. My wife went and had lunch with her in-laws and met Leela. And, you know, my wife, the greatest supporter of me ever was like, oh, my husband's a writer. And, and Lila was like, oh, that's great. And then Leela walked away, turned around and came back to the lunch table and said, someone tells me I should speak with them. And next thing I know, two weeks later, we get on the phone. I never got to meet her because I think I was working or something. And I just told her what I was going through and and how... You know, I had an agent in New York and we were doing thrillers, but I was really pulled to something my agent wasn't into this idea of more, you know, high impact stuff. And she said, write it right now. Write it. She said, this is your problem is you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And this is your invitation to push harder. And she said, send me something you've been working on. And I did. And she just tore it apart. I mean, boo! (laughs) you just can't say this. You can't say this. This is just it doesn't make sense. You have to be deliberate with every single word. Every word matters. And right as I was feeling cut down, she'd say something like, but you know what you can't teach? And that you have is talent. And you have talent in your dialogue. I'm getting chill bumps still. Um, She was an English teacher in San Antonio who hit it big later in life with a book called Roses and started getting million dollar advances. And she died of uh, cancer last week. But even just even the few, last few weeks, we were going back and forth about grammar lessons. And she's been such a big supporter of mine forever, for years. And that was really powerful. So I I try when authors reach out to me now, uh, I remember that. And I just think I, I can't be the teacher that she was because she was just, you know, one of the best. But I, I try to remember that I want to pay that forward, you know.
0: That is a beautiful story.
1: I'm in a WhatsApp group thread, which is like a a text thread, um, a few authors, and we've become really close over the pandemic, especially. And I was talking about something that really bothered me, uh, um, something someone had said. I actually, I I think it was, I I was looking up women's fiction. This is funny. I was looking up women's Mm -hmm. fiction and my name because I was so frustrated. Somebody had called my stuff women's fiction. Actually, it's my editor and I talked to her about it and I was just like, I don't like this term, and I was Googling it, and I stumbled upon this really deep analyzation of my book, An Unfinished Story, and before I knew it, I was reading it, and it absolutely crushed me to the point where I just feel sick talking about it, because she knew what she was doing. She's a really good editor, and she's in a book club, and she was breaking down the structure of my book and everything and really trashing it, and I was just crushed, so I I wrote my team, and I said, y'all, this is just awful. And we kind of just talk back and forth. And my friend Lucy Score, who writes romance, she said the greatest thing that I put on my the front of my computer, which is we're basically heroes, boo. All writers are basically heroes and just no one knows it.
0: In your view, what is good writing?
1: Good writing to me is a book that will take me in and give me a really credible journey that I don't want to forget and that Leaves me a different person when I close it.
0: Thank you for spending time with us. You Likewise. Thanks for doing what you do. Learn more about Boo at BooWalker.com B-O-O and also BenjaminBlackmore.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.